Hello and welcome to Mostly Weather episode 28, the first of 2019. I'm Penny Tranter and who else have we got around the table with today? So I'm Neil from uh, previous podcasts. Hi, I'm Nick. Uh, I've been in one podcast so far last year, but uh, yeah, I mostly work here as a forecaster in our op centre. And I'm Jeff. I've been in plenty of previous podcasts. Great to hear, Jeff, because I've got a question for you. What we got coming up in the next few episodes? Okay, so this uh, particular episode is about uh, uh, teleconnections, uh, which we're going to um, try and explore that particular topic. Coming up, we've got uh, an episode uh, based on uh, weather that kills Nice cheery start to the year. <laughs> and um, we're also going to be recording a couple of our Mostly Weather Halls of Fame. So I believe we've got Lewis Fry Richardson coming up very soon. And Neil, did you have one? Yeah, I wanted to do an episode about one of my all-time scientific heroes, one of the most maverick scientific minds of the 20th century, James Lovelock, who's one of these, um, who's a really famous environmental scientist who came up with this thing called Gaia Theory about how how the whole Earth system works in concert, so the climate works with the biosphere and, and they all interact together. So I think that'll be a really interesting episode. Great, so plenty to look forward to there. Brilliant, thank you very much indeed, Jeff. Well, as you mentioned, we're going to start off with global tele teleconnections. Not teleconnections. Not teleconnections. <laughs> Someone's <laughs> going to say it. <laughs> um, and, but, well, basically, uh, the climate patterns... And how they affect the local weather here in the UK during the winter months. That's what we're really going to focus on today, folks. Yeah, so I think the really interesting thing about these teleconnections is that, and this wasn't obvious when we started doing weather forecasting, right, that things can happen on one side of the world and that information can sort of propagate around the globe to a completely different place and affect the weather there, sometimes years later, you know. And it's really interesting, actually, since we've been modelling this weather and we've been able to investigate these things, we've really started to resolve more and more of these different teleconnections. I mean, I guess it's tele, like, you know, it's like teleportation, isn't it? Really, that's sort of where <laughs> it's the remote, similar, isn't it? It's remote, that's right. That's a similar sort of word because the idea is that you've got these very distant things that are linked, and that's, that's kind of cool. So let, let's, I mean, one good example is, is what's happening to us right now. Yeah. So this is uh, January 2019 that we're recording this, and we had an incident of what's known as sudden stratospheric warming occur over Christmas. And it's just becoming noticeable now that we might be um, feeling the effects of that. So, Nick, I'm going to put you on the spot here. <laughs> How is sudden stratospheric warming, the warming that happened last year, affecting us right now? It's been a slow burner this year. It, as you say, it happened over December, early January. And uh, often when we have these events, it sort of connects down to the tropopause, sorry, the troposphere, the little bit of the atmosphere in which all our weather happens within sort of two to three weeks. It's almost been a month now since uh, it started occurring, and we've had a you know, relatively limited sort of yeah connection to the tropopause. So, so the sun's stratospheric of... warming is a thing that happens in the stratosphere. So that's the bit above the bit of the atmosphere that we live in, right? That's Presumably, right. it happens quickly and it gets warmer, right? Yeah, and it's in the stratosphere. Hence the name, right? Absolutely. Yeah, that's good. We just like, <laughs> right? But it's affecting a thing called the polar vortex, isn't it? So. Stratospheric polar vortex, there's, there's two polar vortexes and hopefully there's one in the tropo troposphere and one in the stratosphere and the one we're on about here is up in the stratosphere. This is like 10 to 25 kilometres up in the atmosphere. But, but once this sudden stratospheric warming happens, it sets off this train of events, right, that eventually reaches us on the ground. Is that, that that's about right? And normally, as you say, that might take two weeks, a month, something like that? That's right. Most of the time it sets off this train of events, but sometimes the impacts the ground so sometimes it's a bust right sometimes it looks like this uh, is going to happen and it never actually happens so so 
and confusingly for sudden sudden stratospheric warmings as well, it doesn't actually warm us, right? No, (laughs) it just warms the stratosphere. You'll have a temperature rise um, above the North Pole in the middle of where the vortex was before it was either displaced or, or broke down. You're talking 50, sometimes more than that, degrees Celsius Ooh. in a matter of a day or two. So it's a, it's, it's a phenomenon that you'll see nowhere else in the atmosphere, anywhere on Earth. It's uh, yeah, quite incredible. And then, and then often that leads to really cold conditions for us on the ground, right? Absolutely. But once it connects down towards the ground, it basically promotes an increased chance of easterly winds or northeasterly winds across, across Europe and eastern parts of North America. And that's where all the cold air in the, the winter half of the year is stored. So it's, uh, yeah, just... Because an increased chance we've been drawn across the UK. So Nick, do we know what causes an SSW then? Do we know why this happens? So there, there are a couple of causes. Um, they've often often been linked, or a number of them are linked to things that happen in the troposphere first. So, you know, big, big areas of high pressure, low pressure, commonly around sort of Alaska to sort of northeast Russia have been identified as sources in the past. Unusually this year, although there's been no sort of papers written on it so far, the, the early thoughts are that this one may have just been called, caused almost by internal dynamics in, okay. the, in the stratosphere itself. So that's another way of saying just happened. It just it? happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think that's the interesting thing about, we're, we're going to go through and talk about a bunch of different examples like this, but I think that's the interesting thing, isn't it? That sometimes we can follow the train of sort of causality through about where stuff has come from. Other, other ones, they just, they just happen. And, the, the, you know, there's sort of signals within all this noise of, and chaos of what's going on in the Earth system. Mm. So I think with the with the, the the disruption of the polar vortex, I mean that eventually reverses almost the jet stream that we're used to. So we normally have a westerly to easterly jet stream that that uh, moderates the climate in the UK. Um, but am I right in thinking that that can reverse uh, with the downwind effects of uh, the sudden stratospheric warming? It can. It an effect of a sudden stratospheric warming is a, an increased probability right. of easterly or weaker westerly winds so this is what we got in the uk for march uh, 2018 isn't it the beast from the east classic examples yeah mm. yeah and uh, and this is what we were maybe expecting this time but it doesn't seem to be quite happening it's been as i said before a very slow burner this time <laughs> so i think one thing that's worth saying about a lot of these um modes of variability a lot of these teleconnections is that they just load the dice of the probability of stuff happening right really this is about forecasting climate i know you know sometimes we use the word climate often to talk about man-made climate change and stuff but here we're really talking about we're just changing the likelihood of certain types of weather happening so it can be more likely to be cold but we just are in the 20 percent of times that sudden stratospheric warming happens and then it doesn't end up being cold i made that number up by the way Nick. Is that right? <laughs> uh, I, th- I think it's around about 70 percent of the time we get get cold weather following a okay. stratospheric warming so 30 percent of the time we don't and as you say it's just one thing of many elements that sort of all layer up on top of each other that that basically decide the final outcome of our weather. So what other modes of variability people should we just rattle off some and see if people have heard of them? El Nino is one of the biggies, right? A lot of people have heard of that. What other ones have we got? La Nina. La Nina, yeah. <laughs> the opposite one. The opposite yeah. one. EVO, <laughs> um, SST, yeah. MJO, lots of TLAs, N-A-O. right? You know what TLAs? Yep. <laughs> Three-letter acronym, right? We're great on acronyms. <laughs> <laughs> so why, why do we use acronyms so much in uh, in in the Met Office then. Easier than long words, makes you sound smart. I don't know, why do you think? I think it's just abbreviations, isn't it? I think you just get sick of writing the, yeah. the same thing out over and over again. The problem is, is you get into the habit of using the TLAs 
Yeah. And, uh, and then, um, yeah, people don't understand what you're talking about unless they happen to work we'll, with you. We'll police ourselves today. Yeah. So, so going back to what we were talking about just now with the sun stratospheric warming, and you mentioned this interesting thing about westerly winds bringing kind of more clement weather, warmer and wetter stuff, and then easterly winds bringing air off the continent, which in winter especially tends to be really cold. So this is related to, to one of the big modes of variability that really affects us in the UK, which people may have heard of, which is called the North Atlantic Oscillation. So that's really the major one that governs our weather, especially in the winter. So does anybody know how this is defined? Nick? <laughs> yeah, I, I've got a, yeah, I've got a very clear idea. So uh, usually we've got generally quite low pressure in the Atlantic situated across Iceland, Greenland area, and relatively high pressure across the Azores further south. Um, we're basically looking at the difference between them. If the if the low pressure is lower than normal and the high is higher, you've got a sharper gradient, which promotes westerly winds. And, and that's just, if you think of sort of cogwheels, right, this makes sense, right? Your low pressure is rotating anti-clockwise, and that's at the north, and your high pressure is rotating clockwise, and that's at the south, so that's just going to squirt the air from the west into the UK, right? Absolutely. It sets up, when you've got positive NAO, which is that, that incidence, you've got really strong jet streams, generally wet, windy and uh, mild weather because the ocean to the west of the UK is pretty mild due to the mm. Gulf Stream and things like that. And is that what we had in the winter of 2013-14? Um, I think 13-14, the initial part of the winter was very stormy. So I'd say it was probably positive NAO um, during the early part. But that was one of those winters where it was the things in the troposphere, those big storms were actually linked into what caused the... Uh, cause the stress rate warming. Did you want to talk about that? Because I've got I've done quite a bit of research on the twenty thirteen fourteen winter. Should we should we go on a should we go on a little journey? Let's do it. So just to set the scene, the winter of 2013-2014 was one of the stormiest uh, winters we've had. None of the storms were particularly notable. It was just the amount and uh, frequency of the storms that we had. Um, The storm of the 4th and the 5th of December generated a major storm surge in the North Sea. The Thames barrier over that winter was raised 13 times in total. On February the 4th, uh, the waves uh, lashed uh, Dawlish in Devon and um, ate away at the seawall and, oh, uh, the the and destroyed yes. the, yeah, 130 foot of yeah. train track, which uh, was not replaced until April. Um, in, on the 24th of se- uh, December, sorry, uh, Stornoway recorded a mean sea level pressure of 936 hectopascals, which is rather low for which is yeah apoptastic, <laughs> uh, possibly the lowest pressure since 1886. Though some research mm. has been in, done on that. So as I say, none of the storms were particularly violent, but um, but the the frequency of them. Uh, caused power disruption, transport disruption, uh, roads were flooded, <clears throat> there were storm surges, trees were downed. And like I mentioned earlier, it's difficult sometimes to to know which came first, the chicken or the egg with these things. There's a whole bunch of associated effects that all happen at the same time. Yeah. One of the effects of this really... So, so again, just to recap, we've got this low pressure north of the UK over Iceland and a high pressure south over the Azores. And when those are really low, low pressure is really low and the high is really high, we get stuff like Jeff's talking about. And part of that is because this increased westerly wind moves the storm track. So there's this this association of the direction that storms travel in. And that's associated with uh, things like the position of the jet stream, which is affected by the the index, right? So the jet stream, 
on that particular winter. So basically, I'm going to go into why did we get those storms? And it was because we had a particularly strong jet stream with uh, a lot of perturbations, a lot of wrinkles on it, or Rosby waves, as we call it. The jet stream was so strong because of the index was uh, so I'll come to that, Neil, just to hold your horses. <laughs> um, so the jet stream was particularly strong that, that year, lots of wrinkles on it, lots of perturbations. Um, and each one of these wrinkles, or Rosby waves, as we call, uh, call them, um, help to generate low pressure areas which become the storms which were moving in from west to east as we would expect with a with a normal strong jet the um a lot of moisture was picked up because the the atlantic was particularly warm that year as well so that picked up a lot of moisture hence all the rainfall that we got that year as well but why was the jet stream so strong that year well the jet stream is generally fueled by um uh, clashes of colder and warmer over North America and Canada and that particular year there was extreme cold temperatures over Canada and that cold air plunged quite far south and met the warmer uh, coming up from the Gulf of Mexico say because as I mentioned before the sea surface temperatures were abnormally high that year so this clash of very cold air and very unusually warmer forced the uh, the jet stream so what happens is these these two areas of, of uh, clash they can't, they can't go down they can only go up and once they get to the uh, tropopause they have to go either left or right and on this occasion they went right and uh, forced a very very strong jet stream to head across the north atlantic now how, how, how strong was that jet stream because i remember it was phenomenal wasn't it 200 300 I think it was about miles per hour, something like that. Thirty miles an hour um, rings a bell, which is a peculiarly strong uh, jet stream. The question is, why was this cold air coming down from Canada? And that was because of the Pacific jet stream, which was also particularly strong and also had these Rosby waves on, mm. which actually were the same Rosby waves that were... Uh, so the, the Rosby waves generated in the Pacific jet stream actually downstream into the Atlantic jet stream were the same ones. So they just they just propagated right the way through the jet streams. Now, why was that particular uh, Pacific jet stream so strong that year? Well, we had a La Nina effect, which is... Nick, could you go into that for me? <laughs> but it's part of the, the ENSO El Nino Southern Oscillation Cycle in the basically equatorial Pacific Ocean. Um, the usual state of play between the Philippines, uh, which is in the uh, western part of the Pacific and sort of the coast of South America in the extreme east. So you've got easterly trade winds that, that basically cross that whole ocean basin. That pushes basically warm water away from the coast of South America, allows cold water to upwell, and you get then sort of convection where the seas are warmest and all that moist air has been fueled into the, the maritime continent or the Philippines and sort of Indonesia places like that. In a La Nina year, that cycle is almost like turbocharged. So you've got really strong easterly trades, much more cold water upwelling and much more enhanced sort of thunderstorm and shower activity across the Philippines, Indonesia, that whole region there. Yeah, so the um, just off the uh, uh, the western seaboard of America, the uh, Pacific Jets actually went very, very far north and then changed direction, came very, very far south and dragged all that cold air um, across North, uh, north America and uh, Canada. Um, but that was caused because of this La Nina effect, um, mm. which had the the, the storms and, and uh, um, precipitation much further north into the into the winter hemisphere, if you like, um, which caused the perturbations that 
ran right the way around the world and eventually gave us the storms in in the UK. So basically we had a terrible stormy winter of 2013-14 because it was quite rainy in Indonesia. Yeah, but the interesting thing is how long it just takes for all of those systems to feed into the next one, to feed into the next one, and for this information to propagate around the world. And you know, you were mentioning, Jeff, about Rosby waves and about the jet stream rippling and those ripples traveling around the, the world. And actually, from a very sort of pure information science point of view, this is exactly how this is data, you know, getting propagated is the same in many ways as the way radio waves travel through the air to transmit, you know, sound to our ears. All these things are just information rippling through the system and echoing around the world, which is kind of amazing really you can always trace it back further and further and further i say sometimes they interfere sometimes they they add on top of each other it's uh yeah it's basically all waves of various wavelengths frequencies blah, blah, blah. so we, t- we talked about um we talked about el nino there or enso which is uh, el nino plus la nina mm-hmm. um and how it's related to the north atlantic oscillation and that's this big teleconnection through the through the jet stream that, that connects those two around the world those two individual things are, are known often as modes of variability, and you know we there's a whole list of these modes of variability in, in uh, around the around the world, and they're kind of interesting. So like we were talking about NAO earlier being a mode of variability, I was talking about it being a mode of variability. In a way, it's sort of just a symptom of of all these other things that are happening. It's just something that we're able to measure really nicely. You know, the reason that we look at that's a rock that we can stick. Uh, actually, I shouldn't, I shouldn't, I shouldn't do Iceland in a very nice place, but it's a convenient place to put a weather station, right? And it's the same with the Azores. And so that just happens to capture what's going on in the atmosphere through this one number that's, that's sort of easier for us to look at. So um, it's, it's worth picking up about variability as well. So the North Atlantic Oscillation is a bit of a misnomer in many ways. So oscillation tends to imply, at least you know, I'm a physicist, it tends to imply something that the sort of waves backwards and forwards. And actually, the NAO, unlike some of the other modes of variability, is, is not what we call periodic. That means it doesn't ripple in a kind of regular way, but it's what we call stochastic, which is it tends to sort of, with a certain randomness or certain probability, jump from one state into the other. So, you know, is that, how does that compare to the other modes of variability, like El Nino, for instance? There is um, sort of a rough average time period on when El Nino and El Nino events occur, but that's got a say a huge margin of error, you know, plus or minus years between events, and and every event is different, different strengths. But, the, different... but re- there's sort of this this ripple in about seven years ish, I think, with El Nino. And like you say, there's there's absolutely tons of variability. Sometimes it just won't happen. But if you look over a long enough time scale, you can start to see this sort of pattern emerging yeah. a bit. It's just I think it's interesting that that's a very different system from the North Atlantic Oscillation, which is much more of a kind of random thing that you're not quite sure when it's going to flip from one to the other at least statistically mm-hmm. yeah well that i mean that's absolutely fascinating isn't it hearing about all these different global teleconnections that we have and the obviously nao is really really important for the uk weather and we've described 2013 2014 but what other years are really important for the UK when we look at the global teleconnections, Nick. Are, are there any others that we need to consider between, beside the SSW, the ENSO? What about the MGO? Is that, is that an important one? Fairly so. It's, um, it's nice to put it in a context of how it actually impacts uh, the, the NAO. Um, a certain, the MGO should introduce is the Madden-Julian Oscillation. It's basically a, an area of enhanced thunderstorms and showers, again, on the mm. equator that very slowly propagates eastwards around around the around the globe 
that's got about a 30 to 60 day cycle so it's quite quite short short term compared to many of these other things like ENSO which can last you know months if not if not years and uh, effectively when when convection's in the western part of the Pacific it favors a, a negative NAO across across the North Atlantic when it's in parts of the Indian Ocean the western hemisphere it favors more mm. of a positive NAO so stormier milder conditions across Europe and the UK so I mean that you know that's all really really interesting I was just um, sort of thinking back you know 2010 was another major winter wasn't it that was one of the really big negative NAO years so by that we mean it was one of the really cold winters Mm. as you might remember so normally it depends on how you define the NAO normally it sort of potters along between sort of minus two and positive two and this was this was a year where it went to minus four so this is a really really strong um, negative NAO so that means that we're flipping um, so the low pressure over Iceland isn't as low as it normally is and the high pressure over the Azores is much lower than it normally mm. is and, and actually I think in this instance it went completely reversed mm. and we ended up getting easterly winds so I suppose that means more of a low comparative low over uh, the Azores and a comparative high over Iceland which is pretty unusual. Yeah that's um, yeah, absolutely correct it was December in particular November December which was the really extreme period of 2010 the early part of the winter that was certainly the case. It sort of it eased off a little bit as we went into the later part of the winter. I remember we went into 2011, January and February were much less remarkable that year. Yes, um, so I'm, I'm interested to know, can you predict them at all? So this is, a, this is something that's actually really developed. It's a really hot area of research. So the Met Office famously in the last few years have had real success with their seasonal weather forecasts. So one of the kind of... Um, you know, the big papers that the Met Office has published is that they can now predict with some appreciable skill um, a couple of months out what the NAO is going to do. And previously, this is something people thought, especially, you know, as I was mentioning earlier, it's what we call a stochastic process, which means it's it flips relatively unpredictably, but what we thought unpredictably between these two states. It turns out by modeling the way the oceans interact and the stratosphere interacts that there, there's actually, we can make a successful forecast. Oh, fantastic. So what is going to happen in the first week of February then? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't looked. Uh, again, again, a slow burner and it's, it's just a balance of probabilities, but all the signals are there again in the things that are in sort of two to four week period that we're likely to have an, a slight negative NAO index with uh, the probabilities suggest cooler than average conditions or colder, sorry, I should say in the winter. Than average conditions across the UK so and Northern talk, Europe. We talked about, um, you know, Jeff was talking about signals propagating through the jet stream from one side of the world to the mm. other, and that's a really good example of how these these things can be connected, you know. But the the atmosphere tends to move really quickly. There's other kind of ways that signals can, can propagate as well, and, and one uh, really common way for information to move around the world is through sea surface temperatures or, or ocean temperatures in general. Mm-hmm. So I think you were mentioning Nick about um, Enso. And mm-hmm. how like that really relies on the sea surface temperatures, and you know I'm saying that the seasonal forecast also relies on these sea surface temperatures as well. Yeah, so um, Enso is one of the, the biggest, clearest teleconnections that has impacts in pretty much all areas of the globe, uh, dependent on what state it's in, and that's probably one of the one of the areas that we were first successful in forecasting a, a teleconnection and and having its sort of impacts noted. And as you say, there's there's various regions um, models are, are coupled now between the ocean mm-hmm. and the atmosphere. And that allows us to make a, a prediction um, of, of what happens. So this this coming year, again, like the substratosphere warming, the current ENSA, we've been on an El Nino watch for, for months now. <laughs> we've uh, we thought we were just about there, but we've never quite got there because the atmosphere 
the sort of the where the thunderstorms move is never connected to the ocean mm. in this case. So um, it, we still expect an El Nino to develop, but if it did, it'd probably be the latest one ever. Mm. You know, they normally develop earlier in the, in the northern hemisphere winter. So you're talking about the potential for some colder weather in um, February, and obviously last year we had beasts from the east, um, and also Storm Emma, which when it coupled with the beasts from the east, we had that phenomenal amount of snow across many parts of the country, um, sort of particularly um, southern England. So, um, you know, Nick, it, it's just sort of really interesting to know what your thoughts are on a sort of beast from the east and, and storm Emma that, that we had. And uh, Thoughts of it in terms of this year or...? or well, sort of, you know, yeah. Is it going to snow? <laughs> I mean, because that was... It was exceptional, wasn't yeah. it, March 2018? And I think everybody... You know, public, the media, everybody's really wanting to know, are we going to get this again this year? Are we going to get it before the end of the winter? The temperatures last year in the air that was drawn across in the Eastley were exceptionally cold. Um, mm. the, even this year, when we were signalling it, the, the signal has weakened a little bit recently. Um, the coldness of the air was nothing in comparison to last year. So although it was still cold enough for there to be some snow, it'd be you know, not, not right on the beaches or anything mm. like that. Mm. You'd need probably a little bit inland and a little bit of elevation to uh, to get there. So. You can't rule it out in short periods, but yeah, it, at the moment, it doesn't look like there's anything on the horizon that's exceptional. So, so we've got so, the seasonal forecast, right, I believe, with the beast from the east. Um, but what really brought it home to everybody was the effects of Storm Emma, when that actually hit the cold weather. And that's what caused the, the major snowfalls. Is that correct? Certainly for southern, southwestern England, south Wales, Storm Emma was the, the big contributor. So for snow, you don't just need it to be cold, right? No. You also need a lot of precepts. You need, which is, is what in the trade we call, uh, well, yeah, snow precipitation, precipitation short right? for rain. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> short for rain. Yeah, I like it. And so the point is that Storm Emma came along with all this moisture, right, and hit the cold air, and that's why we got, you know, so much snow. What were you doing in the snow, Jeff? Um, I was failing to get into work, actually. Oh, really? Uh, I'd given up. I was perfecting my sledging technique. Oh, right. Point. Yeah. <laughs> I decided to work from home. Yeah. Uh, I, I was, yeah. You were a year ago, I guess. Yeah. That's the difference in your shift forecast. You got to get in, got to get the weather forecast. Yeah, I mean, maybe this is a time, Nick, to just give a little bit of a, um, just to explain a little bit more about what you do. Yeah, so I, I work now in the, the guidance unit, um, which is in the forecasting arm of the mess office. I'm basically one of the people who looks at the full array of output, although we often refer to model. In reality, we have tens, if not hundreds of models and various model output to look at. And I, I help. Uh, guide people to the best things to follow the things to ignore and that helps it uh, set like a consistent story mm. uh, for the weather mm. which is things. so important in the current weather that we've got at the moment isn't it yeah it's, it's vital the whole time but when it's high impact you need everybody to be to be say relaying the same story whether you're working at, at airports um you know working in the, the road industry mm. or even broadcasting you know yeah. on, on our yeah. own platforms yeah well, so right right across the board really isn't mm. it absolutely so we've mentioned a bunch of different uh, different modes of variability, mm-hmm. right? What we let's recap. We've had MGO, NAO. We talked about sea surface temperatures. What else we have? Enso. Mm-hmm. So there's another big one, which is the the QBO, another TLA. Right? <laughs> so this is the quasi biennial oscillation. Okay, who knows what about QBO? This is this is I think one of the last ones on our list now. Yeah. Again, it's a jump to the stratosphere mm-hmm. above the equator. So it's uh, above the troposphere, which is where all our weather happens. So we're talking like ten to twenty-five kilometers or so, if not even higher, above the Earth. And above the the Pacific, 
Well, it's quite quite interesting, Kubi, actually. When it originally was found, when Krakatoa erupted in the mid-19th century, Easterlies shot around the globe and took the, the ash or the outfall from Krakatoa around. Some thought, oh, the winds above the equator are Easterlies in the stratosphere, and it was known as the Krakatoa Easterlies. And then Chap, I believe he was a Met Office employee, launched a balloon from Kenya in the 50s. He found it was a Westerly, and uh, it set sort of the cat among the pigeons, and that was sort of unresolved for a, a little bit. Uh, but it's effectively evolved now. We found as uh, an oscillating easterly to westerly flow of the stratosphere, and that periodically flips every sort of one to one point, one and a quarter years. So this is really in contrast to, I know I keep labouring this, but it's quite interesting, quite subtle. That's really in contrast to stuff like the NAO. So the QBO is cool. It's really helpful for us for predicting things because it does tend to wobble mm -hmm. with a certain period, mm -hmm. which is like you say, sort of one and a half years. So that means we know what it is now. We can have a punt at what it's going to be in, you know, a year and a half's time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so it's really interesting that we have all these different teleconnections just layering on top of each other. <laughs> and so then we have to look at them all in order to assess what's going to happen during our winter. The, the QBO, it really links back into this sudden stratospheric warming. So mm. if, if you can imagine um, the polar vortex in the stratosphere, I need to keep that, that has a strong westerly jet that mm. sort of encompasses and runs around it. So when the QBO on the equator, although they're a long way away, is in a westerly phase, it tends to help enhance that westerly jet, you know, they all must add up and help together and it keeps the vortex sort of more coherent, the jet around is stronger and has generally slightly a, a slightly lower risk of it disrupting. As when it's on the easterly phase, um, the QBO easterly, opposed to the westerly that surrounds the stratospheric polar vortex are opposing and that this leads to a, a weaker jet, a more unstable vortex and often more likely to break down in the winter and have a, a sudden stratospheric warming event. So the QBO links to the the, the sudden stratospheric warming that's its main teleconnection for our winters wow. yeah, I, think, I think you know i think it's worth going back and when we look at all of these modes of variability it's worth remembering that i think we can get too carried away with saying well why does that happen why does that happen and you can keep tracing things back and actually from our point of view when we're doing weather forecasting it's just really interesting to characterize them and know they happen and understand the kind of mechanics that are going on there mm. and really it's a sort of symptom of this big interconnected complex living system. We'll get into this in the James Lovelock podcast, actually, because he's a real big believer in these um, emergent properties, he calls them. So you have lots of very complex things interacting. And from that, you get these things that just pop up. It's almost like you sort of you hit the Earth system with loads of noise and things start to ring and oscillate and, and wobble. And yeah. it's going to go. And I think also what's going to be really interesting moving forward is how climate change affects mm. all of that. But maybe that's for another Story time. For another yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks everybody. That, I mean, that that was a really fantastic and really quite in depth technical subject for our first mostly weather of, of 2019. Um, obviously, we're going to be back every, uh, next month as well with a, a cracker of a topic. Can't wait. And also, just to let you know, we've got a newbie on the block. We've got our sister podcast, Weather Snap which is going to be going out for the first time this week. And that's going to be focusing on weather news headlines. So we are going to all be back really soon. Look forward to you listening to us. Um, so, guys, just before we go, anybody on Twitter? Yeah, I'm on Twitter, at Jeff N. Brown, if you've got any questions or suggestions uh, for future podcasts. Yeah, and you can tweet me. My name's a bit complex to spell, but it's at Neil, N-I-A-L-L-H Robinson. So, at Neil H. Robinson on Twitter. So, yeah, tweet me too. 
I'm on there, but I don't do any tweets, I'm afraid. I just follow sports journalists. Oh, sweet. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and I have to say that mine's all personal, so I think <laughs> we'll probably leave that one. So, well, thanks, everybody. It's been a, it's been a great podcast. Thank thanks, you. Bye. 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 The Mostly Weather podcast is a Met Office production produced by Claire Nazir and directed and edited by Simon Hammett.